it was a huge story at the time. This was really unheard of in Ireland up to that point. 45 years ago, in 1976, two young Irish women disappeared and were never seen alive again. Elizabeth Plunkett, a 23-year-old office clerk from Ringsend in Dublin, was holidaying with friends in a caravan park in British Bay, County Wicklow, when she went missing. One month later, 24-year-old Mary Duffy disappeared in Castlebar, County Mayo. Two Englishmen, John Shaw and Geoffrey Evans, were arrested for the abduction, rape, torture and the murder of these two women. They were sentenced to life in prison. In 2012, Geoffrey Evans died, but John Shaw is still behind bars, making him the Irish state's longest-serving prisoner. I'm Sarah Chapalak, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today we look back at the events of 1976 and ask, should John Shaw be given a chance to step back into the outside world? Just a warning before we start, there are some references to sexual assault and violence in today's episode. Connor Lally is the Irish Times security and crime editor. Connor, can you tell us a bit about John Shaw? Who was he and what do we know about his background before he came to Ireland? So what we know about John Shaw is that he's from Wigan in Lancashire. He was a coal miner. He was married in the UK and he had three children. He was separated from his wife and he was friendly with a guy also from Lancashire, a guy called Geoffrey Evans. And in the early to mid-1970s, they essentially went on a crime spree in the, the greater Manchester area. And the police there linked them to three particularly violent rapes of women in that general area. So... Evans and Shaw very quickly became suspects for for these crimes. They were the kind of guys who had been in and out of prison for all types of crimes, really. By the time Geoffrey Evans and John Shaw came to Ireland, they had over 20 previous convictions in the UK. And actually two of John Shaw's convictions were for sexual crimes in England. They travelled to Ireland together in 1974 in order to evade the police there. And really, you know, from the moment they arrived here, they more or less had to engage in crime to come up with cash to uh, survive on. One of their main crimes was breaking into people's houses. So they went on one particular spree of break-ins in the county of Wicklow area and they were caught for that. They were charged, brought to court, convicted and they were jailed. They were both held in Mountjoy Prison for just over a year. When they came out of Mountjoy Prison, I think it was in early 1976, they apparently hatched this plot that they were going to kidnap and kill one woman every week until the guards caught them. And sadly, that's exactly what they did. It it wasn't long before they found their first victim, a 22-year-old woman called Elizabeth Plunkett. Connor, what do we know about how this plan of theirs unfolded? Evans and Shaw had both spent, as I say, about a year in prison in Ireland. They were released from Mountjoy. When they were freed, they travelled to Tipperary. They lived there with an English guy that they had actually met while they were in jail. And it was during this period then, while they were staying with this particular man in County Tipperary, that they went on their crime spree. One night, they went to the County Wicklow area, They were driving down the road in the British Bay area 
and they happened across a woman called Elizabeth Plunkett. She was a 23-year-old woman. She was a foreign currency clerk. She had been in a pub in British Bay and she had had a row with her partner in the pub. So she left the pub on her own and she began, you know, walking away from the pub. Evans and Shaw happened to be travelling through the town at that particular time. They saw her, they passed her in the car, they stopped their car and they went back for her. They took Elizabeth Plunkett in their car to this place, Castle Time and Woods. They attacked her there, they both raped her and they killed her there. After she was dead, they then stole a rowing boat. They tied a stolen lawnmower that they'd stolen from a shed onto her. They rowed out into the sea off British Bay and they threw her remains in the sea, rowed back in again, and they actually hung around in the area for about 48 hours before they left. Obviously, Elizabeth Plunkett's friends and her partner that she was with in the pub that night, they became very concerned when they weren't able to find her. They raised the alarm straight away and immediately the police suspected that something very serious had happened to her. So what was the initial line of inquiry for the Gardaí? Did they have anything to go on which would lead them to these two men? Quite an extensive in- inquiry began straight away. There were sightings of the car that Evans and Shaw were in, and this particular car was owned by a man in County Tipperary that they had stayed with. So using the reg plates from the car, the guards were able to trace the man in Tipperary. They went down to him and he confirmed who Jeffrey Evans and John Shaw were. The Gardaí felt strongly that they were linked to the disappearance of Elizabeth Plunkett, but they still didn't really know any of the details of of the case. And it wasn't long until Sean Evans met their second victim, right? What do we know about what happened to 24-year-old Mary Duffy and the days and the hours leading up to her abduction? So... While the search was underway for Elizabeth Plunkett, Evans and Shaw really just continued to travel around Ireland. They went to Limerick, then they went to Galway, and really they hung around Galway for a prolonged period of time. They bought a caravan there with cash that they'd stolen, and they stayed in that caravan just outside Salt Hill. What they would do really is they would, you know, steal a car, they would drive around a particular region, carry out robberies, they'd go drinking in a pub, sleep in the caravan, and that was really what they were doing every day. On one of these drives around the country, they were in Castle Bar on the night of September 22nd, 1976. Now, this would be about four weeks after they had killed Elizabeth Plunkett in British Bay. So they were in Castlebar, as I say, on September 22nd, and they happened across a woman again walking down the street. She was a 25-year-old waitress, Mary Duffy, and she was from the general area. Again, they just stopped their car, essentially grabbed her from the side of the road and drove off. This time what they did was they took her to a wooded area. The Gardaí actually believed they kept her alive for about 24 hours, and she was drugged and raped during that period. They then killed her, they took her remains and they tied items to it like a breeze block and an anchor and they rode out into Loch Inna and they essentially threw her remains over the side of the boat. 
So by now, John Shaw and Jeffrey Evans have abducted and have murdered these two women in a, in a very short space of time. When did the Gardaí start closing in on the two of them? Once Mary Duffy vanished, obviously the alarm was raised again. Gardaí very quickly came to the view that the two cases in, you know, one in County Mayo in Castle Bar and one in British Bay in County Wicklow, that the two of them were probably linked. They were already searching for Evans and Shaw in relation to the Plunkett case. And these then soon became suspects for the uh, Castle Bar case. Evans and Shaw had actually stolen a green Cortina car in County Galway and they were using that to travel around. They'd actually hand painted the car black and they put fake reg plates on it. As their details were circulated in the press, descriptions of who they were and so on, a lot of people began to spot this hand painted Cortina car. So the Guardi were getting calls really from people all over the west of Ireland about this particular vehicle. And one night, two Gardaí in a patrol car in Salt Hill spotted the vehicle. They radioed for help from the Gardaí from Galway. And just as the Gardaí from Galway arrived, um, Evans and Shaw turned up at their parked car, jumped into the car, and they were just about to drive off when the guards apprehended them. They were taken into custody at that point, and really they never tasted freedom again. And that was in September 1976. And as you said, Evans and Shaw were now in custody, but the bodies of these two women were still missing. So what evidence do the guards have against the pair to finally bring convictions against them? After the arrest of um, Shaw and Evans, they were questioned, obviously, by the guards about the Mary Duffy disappearance and the Elizabeth Plunkett case as well. And really very soon, the guards began to play them off each other, basically. They would tell Evans that Shaw had, you know, told them certain things and they'd tell Shaw that Evans had owned up to the crimes. And really in the heel of the hunt, when they were interviewed, they outlined what they had done. And, you know, they told the guards what had happened, where they had been and how they had carried out these particular crimes. Now, John Shaw was especially helpful. Gardy always regarded him as the one who followed Jeffrey Evans. They regarded Evans as the kind of cleverer man, you know, leader of the duo, if you like, and Shaw tended to row in behind Evans. So it appears that when they were caught, John Shaw, you know, shared an awful lot of information to the point that he brought them back to the scenes of the crime. He explained how he killed the women, you know, where exactly they were killed. He even told the guards where the remains were. And really that work enabled Gardaí to search Loch Ina in County Galway and to search a part of the sea off British Bay. And in Loch Ina, after about a two-week search by Garda and civilian Subaqua team, the remains of Mary Duffy were found there. The Plunkett remains washed up on the shoreline in County Wexford several weeks later. So in 1977, John Shaw went on trial for the rape and the murders of Mary Duffy and Elizabeth Plunkett. The guards obviously had this confession from John to the murders. So how did the case unfold at the time? Despite the fact that John Shaw had been so helpful to the guards in explaining, you know, what had happened and how he and Jeffrey Evans had raped and killed these two women, when they were put on trial, he tried to beat the case he essentially argued that he was detained unlawfully at the time that he gave a statement to the guards. 
and therefore that the statements should not be permitted as evidence in the case. And he also claimed that there was no search warrant issued for a search on the caravan in Barna County, Galway, where they were staying at the time that they were caught. So he essentially argued that any evidence found there was also tainted. So the first time that he was put on trial was in July 1977. So he was put on trial for the murder of Mary Duffy. He actually won his legal argument in the first trial. Uh, The judge would not allow his statement to go forward as evidence and the jury wasn't able to agree a verdict in that particular case. But the second time round, the trial judge did allow the statement as evidence. And on that occasion then, he was found guilty of the murder and rape of Mary Duffy and he was sentenced to life in prison. Jeffrey Shaw's case then proceeded about four or five weeks later. He was convicted for the murder of Elizabeth Plunkett and also for the murder of Mary Duffy. And he was sentenced to life as well. Now, Evans remained in prison until 2008 when he required heart surgery. He had the surgery and he fell into a coma after it. You know, he was in very poor health. He was under prison guard in a hospital bed for years and he finally died in May 2012. But John Shaw has been in prison and he actually remains in prison now. He's in Arbor Hill. He's been in prison for over 45 years. His health is failing and so on and he's now in a legal battle to secure periods of temporary release because he he has been in jail for so long. Coming up... Will Ireland's longest-serving prisoner, John Shaw, ever be granted full release from prison? So Shaw, as you mentioned, has been in Irish prisons for well over four decades now, and he did win the right to two days escorted temporary release almost two years ago, after it was approved by the then Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan. Why didn't those two days release go ahead? Usually anybody who's in jail for that long, I mean, if you're in jail more than, say, 15, 20 years, you will get fairly regular periods of temporary release. It could be escorted just for a day or even a half a day. So John Shaw believes his human rights have been infringed by the fact that he hasn't been allowed out of jail even for a day over the last 45 years. So two years ago, he took a case to the courts and he essentially won his case. And Charlie Flanagan, just before the case started, had actually approved the fact that John Shaw should get two days of temporary release per year. But within weeks of having secured that, COVID started. Now, The prison service hasn't really commented. Some of the sources that I've spoken to have said, you know, he is an older man. He's got poor health. COVID has been a real challenge for the Irish prison service. And that's a big factor. Other sources will point out the fact that um, other prisoners, even older ones, have been able to enjoy temporary release over the last two year period. So my understanding is now is that John Shaw is very determined to get his two days temporary release. He's got a lawyer working away on it and he's prepared to go back to court uh, for a fresh legal challenge very soon. If he does get those two days temporary release, Connor, what would someone in John Shaw's position do at that time? I mean, does he have any family or friends that we know of here in Ireland or would he just be, I guess, wandering around Dublin with an escort? 
Yeah, look, I mean, he's a man who, I mean, he's from Lancashire. He has not set foot in the UK for, by my calculations, around 48 years now. He has three children. He has an ex-wife. He's got no family here. He's got no friends here either. My understanding is, is that in his 45 years in jail, he's only had one visitor during that whole period. So he's really done you know, long, hard, lonely time here in jail in Ireland. Okay. And I think this is why he's so keen to get a period of temporary release from prison. Now, if he is freed for, for a day or two a year, which I think he probably will be, and I think that'll happen fairly soon, I would certainly expect him in the first few times to be handcuffed to prison officers probably the whole time. They would likely bring him out to some particular beauty spot or, you know, coastal area he could go for a walk, he could get a cup of coffee in a coffee shop, buy an ice cream and then to be brought back to jail again. He may not be handcuffed when he's in public going for a walk, but he would be accompanied by at least two prison officers at all time. And the security operation around him, even though he's, you know, he's old now, mm. the security operation around him would be quite strict. And that would remain the case for quite some time if he could show that he would do what he's told, that he would follow instruction when he's enjoying those periods of temporary release. He may get a little bit more freedom, perhaps to walk around on his own. But to be quite honest with you, John Shaw is one of these guys, he's applied for a parole repeatedly. He is actually still regarded by psychologists, probation officers and so on as an extreme risk to women. Um, and this is actually what's keeping him in jail uh, 45, 46 years on. Why is that? What, what do we know about his mental state that means he poses such a great risk to people still, even today? Yeah, I mean, obviously John Shaw is very elderly now and he's frail and his health is poor. So he simply wouldn't be capable of perhaps carrying out exactly the same types of crimes that he did back in the 70s. But that doesn't mean he, he poses no risk. And indeed, you know, some of the sex offenders that are convicted in the courts now are very elderly and some of their crimes have been committed in their older years, if you like. But what we do know about John Shaw is that in June 2016, there was a risk assessment carried out on him as part of the parole process. He was found to be at a high level risk of reoffending. He was found to have poor problem solving skills. He had deviant sexual preferences, poor cooperation with supervision, hostility towards women. He felt general social rejection. So all of those conclusions taken together, not only has he not met the criteria of having reformed and rehabilitated to be released, he is actually being flagged as an ongoing serious risk to women. So really, that's why he has been denied full release under the parole process. The decision over whether or not Shaw will be given this temporary release will be made by the newly established parole board and not the Minister for Justice, which would have been the case up until now. What is the role of this parole board and why will the Minister no longer make the decisions about those serving life sentences? Yeah, I mean, this has always been a contentious point. The Minister for the day, what has happened until now is that the parole board has advised whoever is in office. I mean, the parole board would interview prisoners in jail after seven or eight years into their sentence. Um, and their case will be reviewed, uh, you know, once every year or two. And really what happens then, if 
the prisoners get to the point where they have maybe 17, 18, 20 years served, they're beginning to move into that range where the release could happen. You know, they, they actually could be set free from jail. So what the parole board will do is the parole board will take reports on every prisoner from people like psychologists, probation officers, and they will then take a view, is this person suitable to be released? And they would have made a recommendation then to the minister. What's going to happen now under the new parole act that was enacted last summer? The new parole board is just beginning to operate now and it's far more independent. And really the entire parole process and the call on whether a prisoner should be freed from a life sentence, that will rest with the parole board. So it really takes that decision, whether or not to set a prisoner free, it takes it out of the hands of politicians, which I think is a really progressive thing because it means that every case can be properly examined and the final call will be made based on kind of expert opinion rather than whether a politician feels pressured to keep a person in jail or not based on how you know well-known they are, which is kind of what would have happened until now. If a case was high profile, if a you know victim's family was particularly effective at running a campaign aimed at keeping a particular killer in jail, very often it was just the easier option for the, the minister of the day to keep that particular prisoner in jail. So with the parole board, they will just make a clear-cut call on each case based on the merits of each case. And I probably think it's a fairer system. How long on average does a prisoner serving a life sentence in Ireland actually spend in prison, Connor? I mean, the answer to that question is as long as a piece of string, really, because the way the parole board has worked up until now and the way you know parole has been granted, a life sentence can be any length. I mean, most of the prisoners who are freed from jail every year, having served life, have served around 20 years in, in jail. But in the period before that, particularly going back to like the 1970s and the 1980s in particular, life sentences could be much shorter. I mean, people could be freed after, you know, seven, eight, ten years. Okay. Uh, that day is gone now. You know, if you're sentenced to life in Ireland, you can expect to serve at least 20 years. The big difference between a life sentence and other sentences is you've no release date. You don't know when you're getting out of jail. And psychologically, they say that that's quite hard on people. Those prisoners who don't make any effort to engage, who don't make any effort to, you know, reform, and particularly if they're in prison for very violent crimes and they're regarded as a, you know, risk of of engaging in those types of crimes again, those people, you know, can very often spend 30, 35, 40 years in, in jail. Now, a lot of our people who are in prison for life are in for things like gangland murders. We have a number of men now. I mean, we, we have no shortage of men who are in prison for having killed their, their partners or their wives. And while they may have had no previous convictions before they killed their partners, the fact that they killed their partners really is viewed very seriously. They would be regarded as a risk when they get out of jail unless they can really show that they have genuine remorse and they've tried to change. So I'm thinking of somebody like, say, Joe O'Reilly. His case is just so well known and so high profile. Mm-hmm. He also lied so much. He wouldn't admit what he did. He even claims now he's innocent. He'll tell people in jail that he's innocent. I find it very hard to see that somebody like him will only serve 20 years in jail. Now, I could be wrong, but I think he could be one of these people that, you know, remains in prison for 30 years or more. 
Before we finish, Connor, I want to bring this all back to the families of women like Elizabeth Plunkett and Mary Duffy or any other person whose murderer is currently carrying out a life sentence. If the parole board decides to give these people temporary or even full release, what kind of impact does that have on the families of the victims? Yeah, I mean, the impact that it has on the families of the victims is huge and it can be huge 40 years on even, you know, mm. you know I mean, I've spoken to people whose sons or daughters were killed, you know, decades earlier and they're still in the moment. They just haven't recovered at all. They're haunted by it, basically. And when you speak to the families of, you know, people who've been killed, they say every time they hear the killer's name on the radio or they see it on the front pages of the paper when they're in their local shop, it brings it all back. And for a lot of the families, they obviously don't get any warning that the story is, you know, will be in the news again. And it comes like a bolt out of the blue and then they have to go through a process all over again. In the case of somebody like, say, John Sean now, who's looking for temporary release, you know, obviously the families of the two women who've been killed by him will be aware of that. They don't have to be informed, though, by the Department of Justice or the Irish Prison Service or the guards or anything like that. And this is often a complaint from victims' families that they have no warning that people are being set free from jail or they're being, you know, temporarily released. But in his particular case, I just can't see him ever being freed from jail. I just think he'll die behind bars. But I think it's very difficult. Even this particular podcast, you know, I mean, members of the family may see this podcast online or people Mm -hmm. they know might ask them about it and it will bring it all up for them. Um, And it's from our perspective, it's, it's, it's hard as well because you've got to cover these particular cases. But at the same time, you know, there's a family out there and that every time these things come up, you know, they've got to go through a process all over again. And it is very hard for them. Connor Lally, thanks so much for your time. That's all for today. And you can read more of Connor Lally's crime reporting at irishtimes.com. Today's episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.